Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In the 1920s, the legendary Six Nations Confederacy, which had existed long before the arrival of Europeans in North America, made an international appeal for autonomy within Canada. When the Canadian government was unwilling to negotiate, the Six Nations took their appeal to the most public international forum of the day, the League of Nations. The Canadian government and the Six Nations thus fought an international public relations battle, a battle that would see the Canadian government use every means at its disposal to attempt to undermine the Six Nations' leadership and their historic claim to sovereignty. This is Season 6, Episode 9, A Nation of Our Own, The Six Nations' Appeal to the League of Nations. Today's book recommendation is titled Seven Generations of Iroquois Leadership, The Six Nations Since 1800 by Lawrence Hopman from Syracuse University Press. This book was published in 2008. In this book, Hopman traces the 200 years of the Six Nations history through the lens of the remarkable leaders who shaped it. Focusing on the distinct qualities of Iroquois leadership, Hopman reveals how the Six Nations have survived in the face of overwhelming pressure. Okay, so let's go back to 1919. In the aftermath of the First World War, there was a concerted effort on behalf of some of Canada's politicians to quote-unquote modernize the state's relationship with some of its indigenous inhabitants. This modernization program, as it was termed, was aimed at the idea of status. So status was the official government-recognized status that one was First Nations, or Indian, as was the term in use back then. 
You see, the government's belief was that this issue of status was holding back the modernization and, dare I say, assimilation program of the Canadian government. If the status of First Nations could be removed, and this status had been part of the Indian Act since its inception in the mid-1870s, the government believed that First Nations would not only be pressured into assimilating into the wider white Canadian society, but some would even be enfranchised and thus have the opportunity to vote on their political future. While one would think that the tantalizing carrot of enfranchisement would have sealed the issue, this was not the case. The effort by the Canadian government to be rid of status was seen by many Indigenous leaders as simply a plot to renege on promises made by prior Canadian governments over land issues, resources, and respecting traditional Indigenous territory. In effect, if certain Indigenous groups lost their status, they no longer could claim rights to their traditional land as laid out in the many treaties signed between the Canadian government and First Nations. This particular argument, effectively seen beyond the Canadian claims to quote-unquote modernize for what they really were, was aggressively championed by leaders of the Six Nations Confederacy. Now, who are or what is the Six Nations Confederacy? Well, the Six Nations that we're speaking of are made up of the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Cayuga, the Seneca, and the Tuscarora. In the late 16th century, these Haudenosaunee-speaking peoples united into a loose confederacy which came to dominate much of northeastern United States and southeastern Canada. By the time the first Europeans began to try and settle in the late 16th, early 17th century, this confederacy was one of the great political entities on the continent and would be a major player in the European struggle for continental dominance. During the American Revolutionary War, the Six Nations allied with the British and thus, as a result of the British defeat, large tracts of traditional Six Nations land were now part of the new American Republic, primarily in modern-day New York State. In recognition, however, of the service of the Six Nations, the British governor of Quebec, Sir Frederick Haldimand, granted a large tract of land in what is now southwestern Ontario, effectively a strip of territory following the length of the Grand River from its starting point in Lake Erie. This land was known as the Haldimand Grant, or the Haldimand Tract, or even the Haldimand Proclamation. Roughly 385,000 hectares of land. Yet almost from the beginning, there were disputes over where exactly the Haldeman Tract started and stopped. As well, what could be done with the land by its new occupants, that is, the Six Nations people. For instance, the British objected to the Six Nations selling or leasing the land to settlers. One of the central leaders for the Six Nations, Tyendinaga, known to the British as Joseph Brandt, argued 
that the land ceded to the Six Nations was in fact autonomous Six Nations territory, and he wanted the British to recognize it as such. Effectively, it's our land now, we can do with it what we want. Dispute over the land and what land ownership actually meant for the Six Nations was never really settled. Despite efforts to clarify where the tract began and ended, the debate always boiled down to the issue of autonomy. Were the Six Nations an autonomous entity, or were they part of the growing British North American colonial system? The British did not recognize Six Nations autonomy. By the 1840s, things were becoming more and more intense. Despite the British position against selling or leasing of the land, by mid-century, large chunks of the land had been sold off or leased. On top of that, some settlers were now simply squatting on Six Nations land. A crisis was in the making. The colonial government, at that time representing the province of Canada, offered to buy up the remaining land with the Six Nations agreeing to move to a reserve along the Grand River, approximately 4.8% of the original Haldimand tract. This would now be formally protected by the colonial government and the British Crown, this sort of small piece of reserved land. When the province of Canada joined the other BNA colonies to create the nation of Canada, disputes over Six Nations land continued. At the core was the argument that the Six Nations were an independent ally of the British Crown and thus were never formally part of the new nation that was Canada. So when the Canadian government began to discuss the removal of status and the enfranchisement of the Six Nations, leaders from the Grand River area took it as their opportunity to press their claim for sovereignty, this historic claim for sovereignty. Leading the call was chief of the Cayuga and elected president of the Six Nations Council, Descahey. Descahey claimed that the Canadian government had no right to enforce its law on the Six Nations people as their land was granted to them via the British crown and thus the people could not be enfranchised by a nation that they did not belong to. Folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely exclusively on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive on these donations. It's the only reason we're able to continue to bring you this podcast. And so every dollar is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to do this. As well, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to all who have donated. Thank you to all who have given us a five-star rating. Thank you to all for the positive comments that we keep getting on the podcast. We could not and would not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So Descahey 
with help from American lawyer George P. Decker, who had worked on behalf of the Six Nations in the state of New York, put together an impressive list of grievances and presented these grievances to the Canadian government, effectively calling for a tribunal to look into the issue of not only sovereignty, but a variety of complaints regarding the Canadian government's treatment of the Six Nations. Deskehe even traveled to England in 1921 with Decker at his side, but was told by none other than the British Undersecretary of the Colonies, a certain Winston Churchill, that he should press his case with the Canadian government, not the British. Now, the recently defeated Canadian government, under Conservative Prime Minister Arthur Meehan, was unwilling to listen to the Six Nations' appeal, but... The newly elected government of Liberal Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King was a bit more amenable. King's government agreed to launch a royal commission to investigate the issue, but events spiraled out of control. A fateful encounter in April 1922 between the RCMP and Six Nations protesters led to violence. Then months later, an RCMP raid on Six Nations territory based on supposed reports of liquor being on the reserve led to even more violence. In the aftermath of these confrontations with the RCMP, Deskehe lost any faith in the Canadian government and sought instead a far more public and international platform. With the help of George Decker, Deskehe turned the Six Nations' appeal into a global one. Deskehe went on a speaking tour, first through the United States, appealing to foreign ambassadors in Washington. Then he went to Geneva, Switzerland, the home of the League of Nations, where he continued his lecture circuit throughout the city and countryside, appealing to all who would listen. Incredibly, Deskehe was able to secure the support of some countries. The Netherlands, Ireland, Estonia, Panama, and Persia, which became Iran in 1934. For a brief time, it seemed like the Six Nations Appeal would make its way all the way to the League of Nations floor. Yet, the Canadian government was not going to sit idly by and let this matter make it that far. The Canadian government requested help from the British government, who obliged them. The British carried out a political pressure campaign warning countries not to interfere in internal matters pertaining to countries within the larger British Empire. The British warned the Dutch that they might be forced to bring up the colonial legacy of the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia, which might embarrass the Dutch. The British applied pressure to Panama and Ireland, effectively threatening them not to interfere in matters within the British imperial sphere. With this British pressure, one by one, Descahe's supporters withdrew. By January of 1925, Descahe left Switzerland and returned to the United States, dying from pneumonia six months later. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This would not be the end, however, of the Six Nations appeal to the League of Nations. Five years after Descahey's death, the Six Nations chief Jake Lewis, along with help from another American lawyer, Ockleshaw Johnson, submitted another appeal to the League of Nations to recognize the sovereignty of the Six Nations. Chief Lewis traveled to Britain, where he conducted a series of press gatherings, speeches, and meetings with various British MPs. However, back in Canada, Chief Jake Lewis would find his work undercut by some of his own people. You see, prior to Descahey's death, the Canadian government dissolved the hereditary council of the Six Nations and replaced it with an elected one. This elected one was much more cooperative with the Canadian government than the former hereditary one that Descahey had been a part of. Thus, with the leadership of the local Indian agent, that is, the government representative on the reserve, and the cooperation of several members of the elected council, a resolution was passed refuting Chief Jake Lewis's attempts to put the issue of Six Nations sovereignty in front of the League of Nations once again. Like Descahey before him, Chief Jake Lewis returned to North America having failed at gaining international recognition of Six Nations sovereignty, this time undercut from back home. While most Canadian politicians saw the Six Nations' claim for sovereignty as patently absurd, and later historians even referred to it as a bizarre affair that lacked any serious credibility, the legacy of these attempts at gaining international support for Indigenous rights was part of a long history of activism on a global scale. Numerous attempts, both before and after our story, sought to bring global attention to the plight of Canada's First Nations. The effort of men like Descahey and Chief Jake Lewis and others after would eventually form the bedrock of more successful international efforts in the late 20th and early 21st century, culminating in the 2007 United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This was and is effectively a universal framework for the treatment of indigenous peoples around the world, a recognition of their basic human rights. While Canada now recognizes this declaration, it is interesting to note that when the declaration was first put to the floor of the United Nations General Assembly, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, and Canada were the only four that refused to sign it. But international pressure, coupled with domestic pressure, led by indigenous activists, eventually forced Canada's hand and the nation, rightfully, became a signatory to the document. A major victory in the long struggle for First Nation rights, and no doubt a victory for the spirits of Descahey 
and Chief Jake Lewis. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.